Hello, and welcome to Health Views with Deb Friesen, MD, a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. All right, so my guest here today is Dr. Neelay Shah, and he is the Managing Director and Director of Wellbeing, overseeing analytics and innovation at Delta Airlines. Really my pleasure to talk with you today. You have a very rich history that you're coming from recently at Delta, but it also included, I think, 16 years at Mayo Clinic as a professor there, and then most recently doing healthcare delivery research. So you have a very analytic brain. When did you know that that was a path for you? Yeah, it's an interesting story. So I, my undergraduate degree is in pharmacy. Oh, it is. And okay. And so, at which you chose why? <laughs> that was that's an interesting story. I actually initially started out my undergraduate degree, undergraduate major is immunology. Okay. And I spent a summer working in a lab after my freshman year and decided that was probably not going to be something that was going to be a passion for me. And that real life experience at, is so good early on, isn't it? <laughs> because, you know, otherwise, prior to that, it was like what I imagined yes. you might do. And then you get, oh, okay, this is what you're going to do. You realize, well, maybe that's not a yep. great fit for me. Right. And so, at that point, I looked at a variety of different majors, like, well, what would I want to switch to? And so I ended up switching to pharmacy at the time. And so after I completed my pharmacy degree, I did residency training in pharmacy for a couple of years. And as part of that, there was a master's degree in hospital administration mm-hmm. that I was doing in parallel to the residency training. And in that, I took a variety of courses that was sort of really new area that I'd never had any exposure to. And so that uh, including, so a lot of my courses were either in sort of, you know, administration, business school, but then also had a lot of courses in population health at Mm -hmm. the time at University of Wisconsin. And some of those courses really were very quantitatively oriented and health economics, technology assessment. And a uh, spark went off. And I was like, this is what I get excited by. And so cool. after that, I ended up pursuing my PhD in population health sciences with a focus on health services research and health economics. I love that there are cracks in the sidewalk, right? That yeah. you, can, you can pursue one thing, but this thing comes off of it that is where you want to start going down and do something different. So you found your passion, you got your PhD, and what did your career work look like? What were you what were you looking into? Yeah, you know, so after I completed my PhD, you know, I looked at a variety of different options in terms of from a career path. I looked at government and public sector, I looked at, you know, traditional academia. I ended up at Mayo Clinic partly because they had a group that really was focused on that intersection between evidence and practice. Mm-hmm. So the ability to actually do what I do from a research perspective to potentially have more impact was enticing. And so I ended up at Mayo Clinic right out of my PhD. And so from there, like really ended up doing a variety of things. And that was the other thing with Mayo Clinic. There was a lot of opportunities to both evaluate existing programs, generate new evidence, 
but also the opportunity to implement evidence into routine practice. And so, you know, a lot of my work initially sort of started, you know, I did a mix of sort of internally funded work as well as federally funded research. And most recent years, sort of last five-ish years, I ran FDA-funded Centers for Excellence in Regulatory Science and Innovation. So we... Regulatory Science Innovation. Yeah. That's an interesting micro niche, even in and of itself. Yeah, it really trying to partner with the FDA to sort of identify how to generate evidence that mm-hmm. they need for, mm-hmm. you know, regulatory decision making. Yes. And so it was a wide variety of projects and, and uh, but we really partnered very closely with the FDA. So unlike the traditional grant mechanism where, you know, you get a grant, you go away for five years, produce some uh, research output here, you're connected much closer with the FDA leadership and making it much more purpose, purposeful that what we generate is actually helpful to the FDA in terms of regulatory decision-making. So it seems almost like you're walking down the road together instead of doing this long path and then delivering something, but you, you're getting really almost real-time feedback about this is the right direction, here's what we're learning, and here's how we can tweak it to make it even more relevant. Correct, yeah. That, that sounds more fun. It, it, it was. And, and the other piece that was really for the last few years, 2012, 2013, Mayo Clinic partnered with Optum to form something called Optum Labs, which was essentially creating a you know, real world data platform. And they brought together administrative claims data, electronic health records data, but uh, also some survey or patient, patient reported data. And that was really interesting because at that time, I I felt my bias was it was relatively new. And so I let that from the Mayo Clinic side of things. And to have that platform and what we were able to generate in terms of real world evidence was really fantastic as well. And we were able to leverage some of that into the work with the FDA. And some of it, we were able to, you know, do other things that inform the practice of Mayo Clinic. And were you looking for data in terms of cost containment, utilization, clinical practice, all of the above? Sort of all of the above, you know, and and really some of it to drive public policy. Like one of the first things we did now, it seems really old, but it's a topic that hasn't gone away was out-of-pocket cost of insulin. So this was... (laughs) So relevant today, right? Yeah. And this initially, I think we used this Optum Labs platform, I think published that paper, I think in 2014-ish. So again, that's eight years ago. And this discussion yeah. hasn't changed, but hopefully as we continue to generate more evidence, obviously there's been some progress in terms of how to get more affordable insulin on the market. But yeah, um, but I think generating that, you know, so that's on the cost side, but also did a lot of work sort of comparing. Oftentimes you'll have two treatments that will never do head to head randomized trials. Mm-hmm. So how can we use existing um, secondary data sources to at least provide some guidance on yeah. what if there are differences in effectiveness, differences in safety, and so forth. And I know another total huge element to try to bite off is total cost of care for a condition. And man, that's so hard to solve for. And really, again, trying to get to the heart of, is this the best path? And what are the other things that are informing that, that we can intervene and have different outcomes for real people at the end of this as well? Yeah. And it's spot on because it it really is difficult to sort of say what does total cost of care mean, right? Yes. And, and that's never been defined, you know, for someone with multiple chronic conditions or a single condition or who's yep. had more acute health issues. Uh, how do you define that? And 
I think that's that's a challenging issue, especially because our administrative claim system, if you start attributing things, it yep. ends up becoming problematic very quickly. Right. And every system is designed to get the results it does. Yes. And so when we say code for a lot of things, that's going to happen and, and, and it's going to confound the data that we're trying to look right. at later. So you made this transition recently. And from an it's very interesting, again, from your data and analytics standpoint, being a managing director for well-being. You're not a clinician, really. Mm -hmm. So how is your work translating into that well-being space? And is it for Delta employees? Is it for Delta customers? What does it mean? And why did you make that change? Yeah, you know, it was a really unique opportunity that came to be, you know, right in the middle of the pandemic. In fact, you know, in early 2021, Delta had decided to invest in this concept of building a group that's really focused on well-being and creating the best experiences in the context of well-being, both for their employees and customers. And why did they Um, do that? I think part of it is really thinking about the opportunity that coming out of the pandemic, there is going to be a greater need to do that. How do you ensure that employees stay well, thrive? And and I think it was, frankly, I think the Delta leadership, our CEO, I think, had the foresight to sort of say, we need to plan for this going forward rather than to react, react to something that might happen. So it really was looking forward and trying to say we should invest in something like this. Why did you want the position? What did you what did you see for yourself in being able to make a difference? Yeah, you know, I think a few different things. I think one is this concept of population health. And I was in at Mayo Clinic. One of the things I did for the last few years also ran something called the Transforming Clinical Practice Initiative, which was funded by CMMI, but really trying to create a broader population health infrastructure. And one of the things I learned in that is through primary care, through the traditional healthcare system, you have such little impact and it's such small population. So I take that personally, Neela. <laughs> but you know, but I, it's so it, true. Yeah. Actually, I'm laughing because I keep talking about my yeah. idealistic younger self who thought I was going to change the world yeah. one patient at a time. And yet what happens in the exam room is such a small piece of someone's health. And then there's a whole chunk of the population that doesn't even engage with the healthcare system on a regular basis, right? Right. And so I think this is where the opportunity at Delta was we are taking care of these people across their whole life, across the journey, across the different parts and sort of filling gaps with different tools, resources, other things that would help them. And so that I think is really hard to do from the healthcare system perspective that you can do from the employer perspective. The other thing, just more Broadly, you know, there are challenges with the healthcare system, yet the ultimate payer engages very little in trying to make a difference in terms of employers. Right. And so that was the other thing that was attractive as an employer. What can we do to actually maybe move the needle a little bit more at scale than than happening through other mechanisms for the last 20 plus years, which has, you know, had mixed success at best. Yeah. So I know you're not terribly far into this and probably even with the creation of this team, you're looking at your own data with fresh eyes. Mm. Data is data. It, it leads to insights is where it gets helpful. Any insights that have surprised you? Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. One of the things uh, our group not only focuses on sort of existing data, but also using various ways of generating insights, right? So including we did this year, we've completed over 300 qualitative interviews of our frontline employees. And 
you know, one of the hardest things. And this seems really having been in the healthcare system for 16, well, longer than that, uh, even prior to that, you have this lens that's very healthcare system centered lens. And you come out and you realize people have a lot of trouble identifying what is the care they need, who's providing high quality care for that, what's the easiest way to get in to get that care. Things that are the core, no one's really trying to focus on that now in the Kaiser system. It's obviously very different, closed network. But if you're in a national network across the country, if you are in, you know, Detroit mm-hmm. and you need care for whatever health condition it might be, how do you identify who's a high quality, what's a high quality system, what's a high quality clinician, and how do they fit into your overall healthcare ecosystem? And that just is... It's so, it's It's so challenging. I was in private practice before I joined KP and I told people that my evaluation of being a good physician was at that time, if my patients liked me and my colleagues referred to me, that was the definition. And we started getting more data and feedback, but then we all argued, well, you know what, there's, there's variation that's accounted for. And then you have to have more data to say, no, that's unwarranted versus warranted variation. And then, you know, to step into a system that actually supported me and supported the member, but still lots to learn to do that better. But I feel and I felt my patient's pain in terms of what's wrong with me? How do I figure this out? What do I need? And how do I get to that place? And that's with health insurance. Exactly. And so it really is a challenging. This is a broader, you know, across the country problem. When we are in the healthcare system, I don't think you're as aware of it and how much of a challenge people have because you see the people who made it there. That's right. Right. That's right. Everyone else, you have a very limited lens to that. And and that's where, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity of how do we provide people with that information? And the second piece of it, it, that is challenging. And I think this is an issue with healthcare in general. And I don't know what incentive will solve this is. It's how do you make it easy to get access in a timely way, in a way that aligns with your schedule, your needs. And, you know, all other businesses have figured out, like, you can do this digitally. You can do this through phone calls. You can, there's various different ways to get to what you need in a way that fits what, and healthcare just hasn't done it. It's, you know. I think part of the challenge is that a lot of times those are reductive and they take the human out of the equation, right? And the thing about healthcare is, number one, I think the the relationship in healthcare yep. with a provider and patient is sometimes in and of itself healing. And then it's how do you have that complex decision making available for when you have the outlier? Yeah. And and boy, solving for that, as you said, it's it's not ordering something and getting it delivered. It's what's wrong with my knee. It's a conversation. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, part of my research in my prior world was I was involved in a number of randomized trials of shared decision making. And that was all about creating the conversation. And And so many surprises come out of that, right? Because what what I thought was good for the patient versus what they thought was good for themselves. Their values and preferences may be quite different. And that's why the other piece, though, is the clinician is still important. The patient is, you can't just say, oh, here are your options. Here's the trade-off right. figure. It really is a conversation, right? And the yeah. deliberation that you use to get to that right decision from a treatment perspective. So completely agree. The flip side of it is 
we also have generational shifts coming, right? Yep. And where the expectations and how people engage are quite different. And so how do we evolve? I think it's a little bit of an unknown, but yes. I think there will be an evolution of how healthcare is delivered. You see a lot of just telehealth only. You see a lot of different, you know, startups and others mm-hmm. that are trying to do different things. I think the unknown right now is what is going to scale and resonate with sort of heterogeneous needs when it comes to healthcare. Yeah. Part of your title is innovation. What does that mean in terms of what Delta is trying to do with well-being? Is that innovation in the workspace, innovation in the work culture? I know that you have a thing I'd never heard of until yesterday when Dr. Ting mentioned your flourishing index. I immediately thought of, I forget which small country it was, that looked instead of gross domestic, what am I thinking of, yeah, GDP? Gross, gross domestic happiness. Yes, yes, yeah. gross yeah. domestic happiness. Yeah. It's yeah. like that was going to be their measure yeah. of success. And, and it made me think of that for you when I think of a flourishing index and how that in and of itself is just such an innovative concept. But what does it mean to be innovating in well-being and flourishing right now? Yeah, you know, two different things from the innovation perspective. We are thinking about both innovating on all the things you mentioned, okay. from the work environment to culture to also thinking about where we need to bring in new products and resources but also testing new innovations that we might want to consider bringing into our ecosystem and doing a robust evaluation before we put them into our health and well-being ecosystem. So I think that's sort of a broader piece there. Now, the flourishing index, really our goal was to try to look at what's a way we can measure the overall well-being of our population across physical well-being, emotional well-being, social well-being, financial well-being, that gives sort of more holistic view of our people and use that as a way to continue to improve the overall well-being. And so we looked at well over 200 measures and we're trying to find something that was short enough. So Mm -hmm. this is a measure that was developed by the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard. And it's a 12-question measure, publicly available measure, and you can deploy it and sort of get a sense, especially given the diversity of our population, by the work roles, by locations and geography, by age groups. We want to sort of say, you know, what are our opportunities to continue to enhance the well-being of the population? I love that. Do you have any results from your flourishing questionnaire yet? Yeah, you know, we deployed it last year and had, you know, well over 25,000 people across the world, really, we deployed it internationally as well, complete this. And so it was really getting sort of that baseline of the Mm -hmm. population. And then we are working with the team that really sort of provides some benchmarks and out of these measures that is tied to the Harvard Flourishing Program Group. So we'll get a little bit more from a benchmarking perspective and then sort of use that to sort of guide, okay, where are our opportunities in this space? What's been your biggest challenge so far? You know, biggest challenge, probably this is both the benefit and the challenge. So I'll put it Mm -hmm. both ways. Our group is brand new to Delta Airlines. Mm -hmm. We have now close to well over 70 people. And in some ways we are like building from the ground up. Mm -hmm. So we are sort of a startup within an established company, which has its pros and cons. And there's a lot of benefits to it, right? Because you're building from scratch, building the infrastructure, building the human resource, but also that's the challenge, Mm -hmm. right? So getting all of these pieces, because we want to be answering like 10 questions like yesterday, But just getting all that infrastructure from a data perspective, from a human resource perspective, doing it in a way that's safe and privacy preserving, all of that stuff that we are protecting people. So I think that's in some ways probably been a challenge in some ways, just to build it up in in the right ways. 
and there's always some hiccups along the way. Absolutely. How do you flourish? You know, I am at this point in my life where I think my goal is how can we make an impact on people and lives? And I think when we do something or feel like we're moving that ball forward, that provides a lot of joy and a lot of extra adrenaline, energy, whatever it might be. You know, I publish well over 400 papers, you know, and peer-reviewed literature and so forth, which is very different work than I think what we're trying to do now. And I think if we can make changes and, and create an impact, that's that's what I'm looking for. And that, that sort of brings, you know, brings me joy. So. That makes sense. And how, and, and I want to say lucky, but it's not luck. It's skill, experience, and passion that you bring But to have this other chapter now that is different from the one that came before, and yet everything that came before informs what you're doing, certainly, but to get to do it in a very different way, I can see that that would bring one joy. And to see the impact it can have, not just from the folks that you're working with or the people reading your paper, but actually implementing, innovating, and being able to know, because you're measuring it, whether it worked or not, whether it made a difference. And sometimes knowing what not to do is just as valuable as implementing the thing that takes off. And so no matter how it turns out, you're contributing to people's lives being better. I hope so. Yeah, but that's the hope. And I think one of the things that's been just fascinating to learn for me in the last year and a half is just having a completely different lens on health and well-being and how people experience it. Again, going back to when I was in a healthcare system, you have a completely different lens and Mm -hmm. it's a very healthcare system centric lens. Mm -hmm. And so you feel like even though all the healthcare systems say patients is at the middle, Mm -hmm. the patient is at the middle, but tied to the healthcare system Mm -hmm. is how it's imagined. Right. And that's not the reality. Right. Actually, the patient is in the middle of their own life. Right. Not surrounded by a healthcare system. Right. And we're just one of those pieces of work, play, transportation, food, air, income, all those things that you referenced. And so how do we then support them in their own middle of their life? And, and that is the challenge. And I love the idea of just putting on a different lens. So Neely, when I think about your journey through initially healthcare, mm-hmm. a healthcare setting, doing research, and now bridging over to the employer side of well-being and flourishing, certainly all of those have been components of the healthcare experience. And now a very different way to influence how people maybe even perceive their own health, what the workplace responsibility is towards health and creating that. Are there any big ahas as you've, you you referred to that lens of perspective, as you put on new glasses or the curtain was torn, are there any big ahas? We've talked about a few of them, but, but any others that stand out for you? You know, I think one of the big opportunities, and this is as I think there's a lot of things that are happening now that are outside of the traditional healthcare system. Yes. So you have digital health solutions, you have, you know, standalone, like the One Medicals and concierge healthcare, and the population is changing, like the, mm-hmm. the Gen Zs and millennials, how they are thinking of health and healthcare and well-being is very different. And one of the things that isn't so much a aha, but is a question for me, is will the traditional healthcare system evolve with this? And how will they integrate or are we just gonna fragment it so much across all of these different point solutions with the traditional healthcare system? Because there's always going to be a need for a traditional healthcare system, but it's how does it evolve to meet 
all these other challenges or is it just going to stay? Because having spent time in that area, working with a lot of large academic medical centers, change is very hard and very difficult to make. And so I think as we bring these different pieces together, from my perspective, it's sort of how do we start integrating this better? But that requires, I think, the traditional healthcare system to sort of rethink healthcare and how do they work with these other outside of healthcare solutions. And I don't, at least I haven't seen a solution in this space yet. I agree. And it is interesting, right? We have this tradition of healthcare and how it's been practiced for years and years and years. And then we have these startups and new entrants and billions of dollars of venture capital being invested and a marketplace. And the marketplace means to me that it, it actually can change very quickly in some ways, especially when you find that entrant that does it different and does it better and does it less expensively. Yeah. So I think that we are ripe for disruptive innovation, but I go back to your point of, and how does that integrate with traditional medicine? Because it really is an all, yeah. not an or. And the integration and the holistic piece, I think, is what we're really struggling with right yeah. now of how to make that work, including education is necessary yeah. for good health. Clean air and water is necessary yeah. for good health, reliable transportation. So all of those things, I think, also have to be integrated for all of us to flourish. Absolutely. Yeah. And we hear, you know, everywhere we go these days, we talk about this idea of social determinants of health and everyone uses it. How does that actually play itself out, right? You have, if you're using Epic, Epic has a measure of it, will collect information. But the thing that hasn't been very well addressed is what do you do about it? Yes, yes. Now uh, what, so what? And uh-huh. this is where, you, as you mentioned, the transportation, the food, yeah, all of those things are critical. Without those, the rest of healthcare is irrelevant. Yeah, it just yeah. doesn't even happen. When I talk to companies about social drivers of health and, and we have some measures that we share, it is kind of now what, so what. And, and there's also been groups that are, I say, you know, you have homeless people working for yeah. you. No, we don't. I'm like, you do. You just don't know that you do. <laughs> and, and to be homeless doesn't mean to be out on the street. It means to be unhoused, to be with a friend, to not have a permanent address or a living situation. There's just so many layers to this. And I think the other thing that we're struggling with together is, and who's responsible for what? I love that big corporations such as Delta Airlines is invested and leading. And should that be the role? And and to what extent? And how is it that we then continue the partnerships that exist on so many different levels and make those resources readily available? It's one thing to build out a program but it's worthless if people don't know that they can take advantage of it, to your point about how, of access as well. So we're all learning together. And because you do research and publish, you are going to share, I'm, I'm sure, I'm going to be seeing you on a lot of forums in the future talking about what you've learned along the way. If you were to give advice to other large companies that also want to enhance the well-being of their employees, of their customers, what should they do? Yeah, you know, I will be a little bit biased in my answer here. I think there's a real opportunity to bring better evidence into this space. I think there's a lot of ideas, a lot of things that organizations do at the end of the day, no matter how you put it, it's a little bit of a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. And so how can these resources be used optimally to you know, serve a broader population. And that, I don't know that most organizations have, they rely on outside 
you know, consultants and others to provide them guidance. But I think most employers would benefit by investing and building some internal infrastructure because then that group is really committed to that organization and organizational success and can provide better evidence and how you know, how to deploy more meaningful resources for health and well-being in an organization. So that would be my bias to sense that investing in building internal infrastructure to and expertise in the space is really valuable. Resources are finite and we keep seeing the cost of medical care go up. And so to your point, knowing whether what you're spending your money on is actually buying you what you think you're buying does seem like a fundamental question to be asking And yet there are a lot of well-being programs that really have a very difficult time showing ROI. So I really appreciate your answer and and the clarity that doing so can bring. And then the opportunity for, again, the end of that evaluation to either keep doing it because you are confident it's working or to do something different with those investments so that you can have a different outcome. Yeah, I love that. Is there anything that you wish I would have asked you? You know... The only other piece I would add, and this is sort of unique, and it sort of goes back to the last question that you just asked, is I think there's an opportunity to bring in better user-centered design mm-hmm. into the employer world. There is a lot of that that's going on in the healthcare system for the last 10, 15, maybe 20 years. But I think there's an opportunity to sort of say, how do we build things from the employee, employee and their family perspective? that meets the needs, that fits their needs. Because oftentimes there's a lot of great resources that are provided, but they're set up in a way that doesn't meet their need. It could be digital resources, it could be other things. So for example, you may have a weight loss program and you just have to commit to a call at a set time every two weeks for X period of time. That's probably not gonna work for most people. Not for me, not, (laughs) right? And yet there are, that's just- But we have a weight loss program. But we have a weight, you know, Mm -hmm. so those, how do you sort of build in that component to sort of say, how do programs fit people's lives? And putting a more explicit lens on that, I think will be important. And how do we do that? I think that you referenced bringing in people and you also referenced even understanding a little bit after the fact, the bias that you operated in within a healthcare system. Mm -hmm. I think that is part of the challenge. Of course, we go into this, this is our passion. We think that we're empathic. We think that we're getting it and we're talking to patients or members all the time. And yet the value of having someone come in whose job is to truly understand that user experience and not from our lens, but from theirs. And that also is an investment, right? Because we could do it ourselves. We try to do so many things ourselves. So I appreciate that advice to bring someone else into the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. You are a very interesting, amazing, intelligent, ambitious person who is really, I think, changing the world of Delta with with what you're doing and has contributed to the world in a big way through your research, your innovation. And and even this conversation, I think, is relevatory and impactful and, and will be changing things. So I just want to give you all the credit for what you've brought to the world of healthcare, very indirectly, but very meaningfully. Well, I appreciate that. You're very kind. Thank you so much for uh, having me. You're very welcome. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Fuse podcast with Deb Friesen, MD. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation and we'll share another episode of Health Fuse with you soon. Take good care.
This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The discussion reflects the opinions of the speakers and is not intended to represent Kaiser Permanente policy. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals. Mm-hmm.